Hello everyone, welcome back to Sabbath School from Home. Very pleased to be here, and uh, my name's Cameron. Ah, g'day, I think it's my turn, I'm Ken. I have no idea if it's my turn or not, I'm Luke. And I'm Lachlan, and it is great to have um, the whole team here for this recording. That's right. Uh, We are continuing our journey through the Psalms, and this week the Seventh-day Adventist lesson topic is on um, the messianic elements that well, I was going to say sort of leak through or infuse the Psalms at places. They use much stronger language. They say, uh, let me quote, uh, uh, Christ's life and work are prefigured and predicted in them, often with remarkable accuracy. Hmm. Uh, they give a list of things here. Um, this is not how I was going to start the podcast, but I'm distracted now by reading further than the quote I had earmarked. Uh, it, it, these are an example of things that are prefigured it, or predicted in the Psalms. Um, Christ's deity, his sonship, his obedience, his zeal for God's temple, his identity as the good shepherd, his betrayal, his suffering, his bones not being broken, his death, resurrection, ascension, priesthood, and kingship. Mm. Now, the bones not being broken comes from Psalm 22. Psalms 22 has a lot of other very striking visual images which we don't hold to be messianic, such as being surrounded by bulls. Um, Although, had Christ been killed in a bullfight, we might hold them to be messianic. I mean, there is it's well, possible so, to retrospectively... Well, it's, it's impossible to not retrospectively do it, Cam, because yeah. we are after both the writing of the Psalms and the life of Christ. So we can only apply retrospective yeah. analysis, which raises an interesting question, is how do we determine when something is messianic? Um, well, because... I- does do does is every reference to carpentry in the Bible, in the Old Testament messianic, for example? Um, you raise a good point, Luke. I think that there is a sense in which we can legitimately sift through the Old Testament and say, ah, now with the aid of aid of hindsight, it is obvious that you know, uh, for instance, the passage in Isaiah about the suffering servant is sort of so strikingly hitting the nail on the head in terms mm. of describing mm. Christ's mission, that you say, well, oh, yeah, that's clear. Whereas it may not have been quite so clear at the time to a people who had also been promised uh, a sort of geopolitical stability and victory um, by the prophets. It may not have been clear that God's Messiah would take the form of a suffering servant. So having the gift of hindsight does give us license to find things and say, oh, yeah, I think this is messianic. So I'm not, I'm not opposed... In fact, I, I, I think that there is a sense in which it is uh, much more likely to be useful or even accurate to look at a prophecy and see its application with the benefit of hindsight than it is to try to speculate about how mm. it might end up being fulfilled. Well, well it's Christ... interesting. it's interesting you should mention that. Oh, sorry, you go ahead, Cam. I was just going to say Christ himself employs this approach. I tell this to you now so that when it happens, you will believe in me. Mm. Mm. Not, so say, not I'll tell it to you now so that you will predict it happening or know yeah. it happening or recognise it. It's so that when it happens, you'll look back and you say, ah, oh, yes, this was part of God's plan. It won't feel like part of God's plan, but you'll remember that I said this. Mm. And with the gift of hindsight, you'll say, ah, oh, yes, it was part of God's plan. There are, in fact, only two... I think, legitimate uses of prophecy, one of which is the one you've just said, Ken, where 
it is it is put down so that you can look back on it and understand. Um, and then the second one is to avert a crisis, um, which is the prophecy of Jonah to Nineveh. Right. Mm. So the second use of a prophecy is is to make the prophecy not happen, which is an interesting thing to ponder. Um, yeah. And there's a biblical example of that, just yeah. mentioned. Um, I don't think there are any other. Well, I wonder whether the second one that you raise is really an example of a broader use of prophecy, and that is, um, it is a word from God about to to answer the question: How should we then live? Mm. Hmm. How, how should we live? Yeah, right now. Yeah, yeah. That, yeah. That, uh, yes. Yeah. In it, light exactly. of this, how should I live now? Yeah, it's to inform mm. current behaviour. Mm. Mm. Having well, having said all that, there is one um, factor here that is easy to sometimes forget. I forgot it recently in a church sermon that increasingly got me more and more irritated. And partway through, I lens over to my wife and I said, how can he possibly be drawing that from this Old Testament passage? It's like, uh, you know, this verse, this mm. verse, this. It's extremely clear that the context is talking about something other than Jesus. And my wife just calmly replied to me, yeah, but Paul uses this passage that way. <laughs> and, and I had to remind myself that it was indeed true. There was a not just somewhat of a precedent, there was a... a entirety of Christian history precedent to, to, to reading this particular um, Old Testament passage in, in a messianic sort of interpretation because the New Testament writers did so. And, and I'll admit, an, on occasion, I have slight discomfort with how cavalier they are in, in their application and say, you know, this was done to fulfill what was written. And I sort of think, was, was that what the writer that wrote what was written really did mean? Anyway, um, I, I'm I'm happy to accept that I just need to take a little bit of um, uh, of humility and 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 engage with it a little more seriously. It's not quite as dismissible, yeah, we, we, perhaps as as I might like. Which to is sometimes. another illustration of uh, uh, the fallacy of the, with respect, trite saying, "The Bible and the Bible alone," uh, because. <laughs> What that illustrates is that there is a history of tradition that informs mm. the particular reading. Um, uh, that tradition perhaps started with the Apostle Paul in relation to those ones where that, that he mentioned. Um, that th There are many Seventh-day Adventist traditions of interpretation. Uh, we treat them as if they are self-evident from the Scripture. Uh, that is not so. Uh, they are... Um, interpretations that arise because of the community, can I call it the hermeneutic community of which we are part. Um, and uh, that brings us back to the my favourite text in the whole Bible, in which Jesus said, what do the scriptures say? How do you read them? Mm. Um, well, yeah. Are we getting a little distracted? Oh, it's an interesting no, discussion, possibly. but it's... <laughs> it's on topic. It's I on like, topic. I like the distraction. Um, I think yeah. it's very important. I actually think it's really important and we should continue. Mm. And I think it's really important because in the passage, that if, in the psalm that we're going to read, we are going to come across a passage that uh, is very difficult to make sense of. Um, not just mm. in the sense of make sense of it in the version in which we read it, but difficult to make sense of because those who have translated it are unable 
to attribute any literal meaning to it without engaging in very substantial uh, reconstruction. Mm. Uh, so mm. not just construction, but reconstruction. Before we yeah. jump onto that, I want to make a mental pin for remembering, and we can cut this out of the um, published version of the podcast if you want. Um, the question, what does Jesus teach about hermeneutics, would make a great sermon, perhaps, or or thesis. Sounds like a PhD paper. to me. <laughs> <laughs> because because it, it's an interesting one. What does Jesus teach about hermeneutics? Somebody asks him, what does the scripture say? He doesn't say, oh, well, the correct doctrine is this, this, and this, and this, and this. He says, how do you read it? Um, mm. And there's volumes spoken in that approach. But and, anyway. And he then goes from there. Uh, yeah, he starts yeah. at the point where the person is reading it and moves from there. Well, I, I, while you've been talking, I've, I've been thinking of a, another sort of perspective on this um, messianic reading of texts, which it may in some cases be hard to verify or justify exactly to what degree they are messianic or exploring with different interpretations. Um, it's not just the Old Testament. You know, um, anyone who has some fluency with uh, the Christian story would find it very hard not to appreciate um, a messianic reading of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Mm. Now, mm. it is a story in its own right. There's a very compelling messianic reading of the final Harry Potter story uh, because Harry Potter discovers that that he has a part of the, the chief villain, the main uh, worker of evil, part of his essence has been attached to Harry and that Harry's been out there trying to kill this villain and he realises that the only way he can do it is to voluntarily offer himself up as a sacrifice. He must die. And there's this image, you know, where it says Christ became sin. Um, there's that, that sort of picture. Um, and what distinguishes uh, Harry Potter from Voldemort is that Harry is willing to make that sacrifice, whereas Voldemort is clinging to life at all cost. And... Voldemort um, is powerful, but he does not have the power of the will to sacrifice himself for any cause apart from himself. And in one sense, he is enslaved to himself, to his... Hmm. Yeah, and whereas Harry Potter is able to say, no, I, I see a cause bigger than me. Now, Cam, there's a very fun online conversation you could kick off by uh, claiming that Harry Potter is um, Christian allegory. It's particularly the final one and the way that it closes. I know that our listeners will have different views on Harry Potter and I guess they're welcome to email us if they if they so fit. Um, my own sort of reading of them is that their moral complexity and their insight into the human condition increases um, towards the final books. And the last one in particular, uh, there, is, there is a picture of Harry offering himself up for his friends just because he cares for them. Mm. Um, and and it, there is a story as it were, of a death and resurrection. There's, there is a very compelling Christian allegory to be made. Now, I'd be very surprised if J.K. Rowling had no... If, if, if that reading came as a surprise to her, she's a clever author, and one thing that clever authors do is borrow from really good stories. And the story of the hero giving himself up voluntarily and self-sacrifice makes a great story. Mm. Um, so... Which, uh, 
interesting side note to that. Um, you would very much enjoy reading J.R. Tolkien's um, translation or, and commentary on Beowulf. Right. Um, because one of the things that he writes about, of course, he was a professor of, of um, yeah. literature and language, so this was his whole thing. But one of the things he writes about in it is is how Beowulf, the story in Beowulf, when it was written down in Northumbria for the first time by the monks, um, there is evidence that it was Christianized. And part of yeah. that Christianizing process is to play up the self-sacrificial yeah. um, mm. element of the hero of the story, which is just, yeah. it's fascinating. So, um, Well, this is, this is one there's of a the long things I've heard, of, I've heard it commented that in the ancient world, meekness or humility was not seen as a virtue. Um, you know, the strength and the power of the warrior was admired, but the it, what, what that, that seems to be a, a sort of uniquely Judeo-Christian contribution to global thought as a whole. We're getting even further off topic. I'm, except I'm to a say little that. bit sceptical of those sorts of uh, conclusions. Uh, I'd want to hear from a, a, an anthropologist who had deep knowledge of other cultures and traditions before yeah, I we, were to uh, pat well, myself on the back about being part of a history which had such a unique uh, contribution to self-sacrifice. If you did pat yourself on the back, Ken, that would not be a meek action. No, true. And you true might belong enough. to that history, but you, <laughs> well, you wouldn't I, I am not such a person as you described, Ken, but um, I would submit that it would be a fascinating podcast episode to discuss the um, spring and autumn and warring states period Chinese philosopher Mordza and his philosophy of right. universal love um, <laughs> and his particular well. approach towards uh, how uh, to apply that philosophy in day-to-day -day life. I'm laughing. Right. I'm it laughing is fascinating. Because I think Cam's struggling to, uh, uh, to, to, to get us back on track and we've got about as when, far off as we can get and Lachlan's completely given up. He's just sitting silent. Well, <laughs> well that's, I, I mean, I, I, have, to, I have to... I think it would be a fun podcast. I am intentionally terrible. <laughs> <laughs> so I will well, stop now. The... The I, I was, I'm less of an expert on different cultures um, than you, Luke, and much less experienced of them. And I'm repeating things that I don't have much knowledge of when it comes to unique Judeo-Christian contributions. Um, I guess the point I'm making, though, holds true: is it would be possible to make a a messianic reading of mm. the Chinese philosophy you mentioned. Mm. So, in well, light of what we know of Christ, how then do we read this or how then do and we read that? I, I, a really important point, and it comes all the way back to some of the stuff we've discussed before about, um, is it Melchizedek? And the, yeah. the, 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 the worship of God outside of the traditions of the people of the Bible. Um, but a contribution to, a, you know, a positive contribution to human culture or human understanding does not have to be absolutely unique to be valuable and true yeah. right mm. um but and i think christianity and seventh-day adventism in particular gets hung up on being unique i'm sorry and, i'm sorry luke but if it wasn't yes. written by a seventh-day adventist author you ought not be reading it <laughs> yes my, my hope is built on nothing less than ellen white and pacific press is that <laughs> <laughs>
Um, <laughs> we're getting very off track now. Um, Psalm uh, 2. Psalm 2. Let's <laughs> jump straight to Psalm 2. Um, there was a segue. I'm trying to think of what it was. Oh, the segue was this. Um, the Psalms that the lesson turns to first is Psalms 22 and 23. And there's a fascinating... Uh, both are held to be messianic and one talks about the suffering person in anguish and one talks about the calm and peaceful shepherd and that comparison we have dealt with in our very first season where there were two episodes mm. where we looked at those two psalms so that's that's why we're avoiding the sort of obvi- obvious candidate and we are going to jump to psalm two um shall we read a few verses each why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the lord and against his anointed one let us break their chains they say and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I'll tell you the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I'll make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now then, you kings, act wisely. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverent fear and rejoice with trembling. Submit to God's royal son, or he will become angry and you will be destroyed in the midst of all your activities. For his anger flares up in an instant. But what joy for all who take refuge in him. Ah, there's no... Look, I, I, can I, I'm telling a story against myself and it's not one of which I'm particularly proud, although I... It is amusing, and I think I have probably improved since those days. Um, <laughs> the we we keep a funny book of things that the kids have said over the years, um, and uh, uh, one of them was this. You'll see why I'm not proud of it. Um, uh, my eldest son, Kristen, Dad, he hasn't got a short fuse. He's detonate on impact. <laughs> <laughs> Mm. <laughs> well, that sounds um, a little that, bit like that... uh, verse twelve, doesn't it? His yeah, I was going to say up that... in a moment. This, yeah, he's detonated this... on impact. Well, this Maybe is that's the what the Bible means when it says that David was a man after God's own heart. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe it's not a compliment. <laughs> well, uh... this is this is the very point. The lesson seizes on the last verses that refer to the the son. Um, who is to be given ultimate mm. authority. And they say, there you are, that's Christ. If you st- if you stood back from this psalm, I sometimes tell my students, if I, if they're getting lost in the details of a maths problem, I said, pretend that you're, you're standing 10 metres away and you forgot to bring your glasses. You can't see any of the details. You know, what what is it? And I'm waiting for them to say it's a circle or it's a parabola. Or it's a, I'm trying to get them to... Mm. You know, if you stood back 10 metres from this psalm with your glasses off and you looked at it, you'd say, um, well, would you say this... It paints a broad brushstroke um, realistic picture of Christ's mission to the world. I mean, at one moment, God's... La- it's almost bipolar. one moment, God's laughing at everyone. Um, and he's saying, the Lord holds them in derision and he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. So um, the, the sort of uh, broad brushstroke emotional tone of this poem, I don't find resonant with... Yeah, there's another problem with it, which is that almost all of the characters are kings, and that makes it hard to follow. Um, So in verse 7, the king proclaims the Lord's decree, the Lord has said to me, you are my son. 
And when I first read that, I, I was confused because the in verse 2, the, the kings of the earth prepare for battle, the rulers plot together against the Lord. And I was thinking, how is this going on? But it's not. It's because they're different kings. The, it's the kings of the rulers of, the, of all the earth who are plotting yeah. against the Lord. And then by the time you get to verse 6, the Lord declares that he's placed his chosen king on the throne in Jerusalem. But it makes it hard to follow because this psalm is a battle of kings. There's hardly an ordinary person mentioned. It, it, well, yeah. Robert Robert um, uh, Robert Alter in the Hebrew Bible uh, refers to in his commentary on this psalm refers to the fact that it's actually an envelope. So you have at the start the kings of the earth and the nations, uh, and why do they conspire? Why do they take their stand uh, and gather against the Lord? And then in the end, uh, at verse ten, therefore you kings. Be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth, serve the Lord. So there's there's uh, a there's there's an envelope uh, about the kings and the rulers of the earth, um, and in the middle is uh, the stuff being spoken about to them. Mm. Uh, mm. The, the, one one the other at, interesting. At the risk... I'm, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna throw this in here now because this is the this is the reason why our discussion about um, interpretation is so important. Robert Alter. Um, it uh, translates verse 12 in the following way with purity be armed lest he rage and you be lost on the way for his wrath in a moment flares up happy all who shelter in him um, now mm. he then says this about that translation and all translations of verse 12 the two Hebrew words and I'm not going to say them correctly but nashku bar are the first of a long series of textual crucies in the Psalms as they stand, they make little sense, and the most elaborate efforts have been undertaken, none very convincing, to make the text mean something by extensive reconstructive surgery. The present mm. translations used to the Masoretic text merely revocalizing bar, question mark son, question mark wheat, as bore, purity. The usual sense of the verb nashku is to kiss, but it also means to bear or wield arms, Compare its use in a number of Psalms, 78, 9, 1 Chronicles 12, 2, and 2 Chronicles 17, 17. As an idiom, to arm oneself with purity is not otherwise attested to in the Bible. But it might make sense here as a counterpoint to the implied raising of arms against Zion at the beginning of the Psalm. So he points out mm. to the real problem of making any sense at all of the words as they have come to us in verse 12. Um, so that well, raises an interesting, more general question. Sorry, you go up. <laughs> I keep. I was just going to say the, the. I was reading from the New Living Translation. It has a much more simplistic footnote, but on that same verse, it just says the meaning of the Hebrew is uncertain. Mm -hmm. So, thank you, Ken. Your your commentary that you read from there helped to explain what about it is uncertain, um, and really highlight highlight exactly this mm -hmm. issue. So, I, it, I think to me it raises an interesting broader question, which is. How much confidence do we have in our translations of the original languages of of the the Bible? And are, are there bits of the Bible that are just not well? This is for us that are not things that we can understand with our cultural context and and that the inherent limitations of translation. Now, I have a little mm. experience translating from very dissimilar languages, and one of the things you learn very early on um, in doing it or reading it is that it is impossible to not lose meaning 
in a translation. It is impossible to not lose nuance, cultural context. Idioms are practically impossible to translate without extensive footnotes, uh, like the one that you've just read, Ken. Mm-hmm. Um, and without and, and without real experience, indeed, in the culture into which you're translating yeah. it. Well, exactly. So even, because even the idiom is untranslatable. Yeah. Even with a good translation, very often what you end up with is a completely different text that means something to the people reading it, that is yeah. valuable and useful and good, and is based on the original text, but yeah. it's not the same text, and it doesn't mean the same thing. It's it's almost a new text. Uh, it's almost like an inspired by, mm. you know. Well, can I can I say a couple explanations? Of... <laughs> one of the explanations for verse twelve is it might be an idiom. There's a lot of idioms mm. that we use that, at a literal translation, would leave a translator two thousand years from now quite bewildered. Mm. Um, the other day, uh, pull a up couple your of socks. years ago, mm. pull up your socks. Someone said to me, I've shared this on the podcast before and excuse the language, but I once had a colleague who was about to compliment me, preface it with an idiom I'd never heard. He said, now, Cameron, look, I don't want to blow wind up your ass, but, and I had never heard that idiom before. <laughs> I don't want to blow smoke up your ass or something. I can't remember, but whatever the, yeah. um, the idiom. I had no idea what was coming next. And what came next mm. was a compliment, which surprised me. Yes. You know, it is an idiom for flattery. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What, why, why flattery should feel like that, I have no idea. But anyway. Um. <laughs> yes, the um, immediate association with that particular action which comes to mind is it, I believe it's something that used to be done um, as, as uh, to try and um, get water out of people's lungs after they had drowned. I don't yeah. think it was very successful. There used to be kits. There used to be kits near the kits. water's edge along yes, the Thames the water's for edge blowing smoke up. For, for blowing smoke up people's posterior um in case they're drowned i well thank you for that illustration do, yes the, the cultural background is important i do understand why that is not common practice today <laughs> um i mean look but it doesn't even just arise out of idiom uh it can arise out of the different cultural context forgive me if i've used this illustration before but um uh, if i if i say to an australian um how you going mate the answer will be yeah not bad um and if i were mm. to ask an american how you doing the answer would be great now the literal meaning yeah. of those two <laughs> responses is very very different but the essential uh meaning within the particular cultural context is basically the same uh it's a courteous mm. response that reveals nothing about how i actually am because i know mm. you weren't actually inquiring after it yeah. you were just being courteous um so <laughs> and the tone of both is the same generally positive yeah yeah it's just in australia yeah. generally positive is expressed it's just the absence of to... negative yeah. <laughs> yeah the absence of negative yeah, as, right. as opposed to uh, yeah. the american context can i attempt a translation um of verse four um yeah um the thought occurred to me that we are trying to explain this psalm to some of the my students it would have to read something like this he who sits in heaven says lol f-o-t-g-l um he speaks to them he says fail epic fail (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (laughs) i reckon that's pretty close (laughs) yeah probably and you know what that would communicate the meaning of this uh 
that verse more effectively to some people than many other English mm. translations do, including the one we read. So here's a thought that I think is worth landing a little bit. Um, you know, we, we raise the idea, there's, there's a passage here, there's a verse that's considered almost untranslatable. The original meaning is uncertain. Even scholars that have studied this stuff. Um, and was it you, Luke, who commented maybe there's some parts of the Bible that are just fundamentally untranslatable? Well, that, I, I, that, didn't, that... I didn't assert that, I, but I, I do think it's an interesting question. I don't know the answer. Yeah, but it... well, I don't know either, and I'm, uh, you know, but, but musing on its possibility, all I would say is this. It seems to me it would, it would almost certainly be a biblical scholarship error to place substantial foundational importance upon a particular reading of a passage that 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 seemed to be one of those that was somewhat difficult to translate if in other words this it seems to me and we've alluded to this it seems to me verse 12 is not very vividly trying to document that jesus is the son of god if mm. if this was the only verse that we had in the bible that spoke to that theme i would have to admit it's a nice idea, but it's not a theme worth taking as foundational. In this instance, I think there's plenty of other um, Versus, parts of yeah. the Bible that we could look at. And indeed, indeed, identifying <clears throat> Jesus as the Son of God is something that happened in, very rapidly in his time and in early Christian era. Uh, Based on a lot I of verses. Yeah, I don't think that this is one of those verses well, that, is, that helps to substantia substantially um, affirm that position. Yeah. But not to me anyway. One of the, one well, of the, one no, of the one but this is where this is where hindsight might come in. You might say, given the other verses that exist, where there is less ambiguity about the translation, and given the broad mm. spe spectrum and pattern, we may then feel justified in saying, yes, maybe there is there is some echo of of Christ's divine sonship filtering through this sun. Well, I mean, again, that's an interpretative process. One of the, one of the answers to these sort of issues uh, that I have found most helpful, um, and I may not be accurately relaying uh, the words, although I hope I am the meaning. Uh, Dallas Willard, in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, when asked about, when responding to the issue of, you know, well, what about the the text of the Bible? How 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 do we read it? Are we uh, is this lit, you know word for word inspiration or what what is it? How how has it come to us? Um, mm. And his response was, uh, "I am very confident that the Bible is fully capable of doing what God intends it to do." Ha <laughs> um, And I think I think at the end mm. of the day that. Uh, while that might seem, a, a, in a sense, a diplomatic yeah. sidestepping of those sorts of issues, uh, I think it it really puts it into its proper place. Um, mm. We can tend to expect the Bible to do too much and not allow it to do enough. Yeah, I think that's very insightful, Ken. Yeah, that's good. Um, it 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 raises. I, I'm trying to think in analogies. And um, it's interesting to me how much emphasis we place on the bits of the Old Testament that are messianic, as though there is some 
special reason why bits of the Old Testament are messianic. Um, well, yes. But, so I was thinking There's... of the... Well, I, I was thinking of the analogy of, of an artist's work, right? And so an artist over their career will develop in skill and and experience and capacity and their works will change and grow and improve over time until you get to some piece of genius fascinatingly luke at the end yeah yeah fascinatingly you end up with some artists like monet whose eyesight deteriorated over time and his workings became more exploratory from our point of view who have clear eyesight because they came became more impressionistic and and, no. and beethoven who became deaf uh, yeah. and yes. uh, well, you're both, you're both succeeding works. excellently in completely muddying my metaphor um, but yeah the, the <laughs> okay. idea so, and, and artist gets better over time right and then you look at the final genius works okay yeah. and then you look at their earlier works with hindsight and you go oh yes I can see signs of what is to come in that earlier work mm. Yeah. Right. Mm, mm, mm. It's a good point. Um, and that is that is that is normal. In fact, that that is natural. Yeah. And I think we see a lot of that in the Old Testament. I yeah. I to what you were saying, Ken. I think that is what the Bible does. It is leading towards Christ, completely naturally. The, 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 and the same way that any improvement over time leads towards something better. And then with hindsight, you look back and you go, yeah, oh, here's where we were going all along. Um, yeah, and here's some here's some things that in hindsight went nowhere. You know, that um, mass yeah. genocide, that doesn't seem to be a feature that's here's, kept in this narrative. That disappears that the, fairly early on. Here's the bits that the artist grew out of, got better. Yeah. Um, and, if this, and, and by if the this... artist, I mean, I mean not God. I mean the authors of the Bible, right? The human mm. understanding mm. of God. Starts mm. with with genocide and ends with salvation. Well, it doesn't end, I should say. It it culminates with salvation yeah. and and maybe is continuing to develop towards even greater things. Well, exactly. And uh, my comment would be if if someone um, was giving me a Bible study in defence of Christ as the Son of God, and they appealed to this particular psalm to defend the idea of a divine son. My response would be, um, this man doth protest too much. He's trying so hard to convince me. It would introduce doubts in my mind, <laughs> which is the danger of, of appealing to very specific... It's a bit like when someone says to you, now don't worry, but you know, there's yeah. nothing more worrying in the world yeah. than, yeah. than yeah. the sentence that starts with yeah. don't worry. Promise uh. that you're not going to get angry. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, there's something that's um. about, about to make me very angry. <laughs> well, and when, when someone tries to convince you of something too hard, um, you might become suspicious. And when we, when we appeal to specific, when we say in Psalms 22 that the bones being broken is definitely messianic and the bulls aren't, and we give no justification from the text itself about what, how one is and how one isn't. It, it begins to smack of this, well, they're trying a bit too hard to convince me. If you start at the large scale um, and then move to the particulars, it doesn't happen that way. So you say, well, what's the broad scale concept? Well, one broad scale concept seems to be God cares for foreigners. He sends Jonah to Nineveh. And sometimes people outside the church are pretty good at 
repenting and following him. So when Christ says to the Pharisees, um, you stubborn people, if I'd been sent to Tyre and Sidon, you know, they would have received me, but you haven't received me. Sodom and Gomorrah are going to stand up in judgment against you. And the Pharisees are scandalized. We can look back and say, well, actually, they shouldn't have been scandalized. There's a whole book of the Bible that articulates really clearly what God's approach is to foreigners and what, what the outsider's capacity is for receiving God. Uh, it's not just the insiders who can do it. And when you, when you look at the broad scale picture of, um, of Abraham risking himself for Lot, simply because Lot's family. And it becomes even more acute when Joseph um, forgives his brothers. And then you get to David forgiving Saul repeatedly. And then you see a pattern of God's people at their best being gracious. And then you discover that the central element of Christ's mission is grace. You start to say, well, when Christ said, you diligently search the scriptures, but they're, they're what they talk about me. I don't think Christ was talking about verse 12 of the second chapter of this particular book. I think he was talking about the big picture. Mm. Mm. The whole big picture in there is that God's trying to make the world new. He's trying to reach people. He rescues a stubborn people out of Egypt who don't really believe in him, but he persists with them. He's gracious to them repeatedly. You know, there's this narrative. And against that broad backdrop, you say, well, what we see described in the Gospels of Christ is so consistent. It seems to be the thing from the Old Testament, drawn into focus. I have to say, Cam, as a consumer of competing and conflicting narratives um, almost every day and, and being faced with the choice of having, with having to choose between them, um, the, the helicopter view from on high uh, is much more persuasive uh, than the specks of dust that are thrown up as it comes into land. Um, yeah. uh, and yeah. so it's 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 so true that the that the big sometimes look don't waste your time with passing over that word and the difference between what they said in their evidence now and what they said in their statement to the police. Let's have a look at the uh, overall consistency of what they're saying with common human experience. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. This this discussion this evening is just triggering all sorts of. Um, ideas for for creative projects in my mind. The one that you've just um, suggested to me, Ken, is the Bible entirely in aviation metaphors. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I like that very um, much. I did actually do. Yeah. I did actually do um, uh, Psalm twenty three once in a translation that started, uh, "The Lord is my air traffic controller." Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. And I used it in a sermon once, and I had many people comment positively on it. I'm sure there were some who thought it was absolutely ridiculous as well. Um. Yeah. Well, if you have once accepted Christ on the basis of his character and on the basis of, you know, he says to John the Baptist who has doubts, he doesn't refer John the Baptist's followers to particular um, verses. He says, go and just, just go and tell John the Baptist what you're seeing. Look, look at me at work and go and describe that to John. And see if John thinks that sounds like the Son of God. And if you've accepted Christ at that level, then I think you are allowed to go through and say, wow, um, there are these really striking and specific and particular prophecies. And the prophecies do affirm Christ as the Messiah. But um, without, the, without the, the big picture of Christ as a person resembling God at work, 
those particular prophecies that describe him coming at Bethlehem or being this tall or having this colour hair or you know whatever detail you might be wanting to draw out, those particulars wouldn't mean anything without the broad scale consistency of, of Christ looking like God at work. Mm. It's a very good point. It may be a very good point to wrap up on. Uh, well, I think it probably is because we need to. Um... Okay. In that case, we <laughs> yes. shall. It's, it, the characteristics of it being a very good point to wrap up on are that it's come at around the 42-minute mark. Uh, I see. Well, and also case, it was we, it was it was an insightful comment. In that, in that but case, primarily us, the time thing. Let us wrap this up then and say that Psalms two seems to have a lot more. We obviously we didn't get so much into exegesis today. Um, the image of God laughing is a really fascinating one. Uh, laughing at his enemies or foes, uh, it's very evocative image. Um, this psalm is not a psalm I've spent time reading in the past, and it seems still to be a more complicated text than some of the other psalms. Uh, but we hope you've enjoyed our discussion. There's obviously lots more to talk about, and um, if you want to continue the discussion, you can email us a comment at sabbathschoolfromhome at gmail.com. Otherwise, join us again next week. <laughs>